Like many of you, the past few months have kept me physically separated from my family. My grandmother, dad, and uncle all moved to Texas within the past year. I haven't seen them since March. This is the longest stretch I've gone without seeing them. Then on top of that, this year's presidential election has divided my family along political and ideological lines. If I can level with you for a moment, it's been a difficult few months. But I have a hunch. My family is not alone in its physical and ideological separation. You know, maybe we were made for this moment. Division is nothing new to United Methodists, to Christians. In fact, most of the New Testament was occasioned by either conflict the church had with itself or conflict the church had with the empire. The letter to the church in Ephesus was written to a church who found itself in a precarious situation. Gentile Christians, Christians who were not Jewish converts, had ignored the place Israel held in God's saving history. These Gentile Christians were dismissive of the history, traditions, and rituals of Israel. It was as though what had brought the church into existence no longer mattered to this growing group within the church. Jesus was an Israelite. Throughout his life, he never held citizenship within the Roman Empire. He never had the same rights a Roman citizen would have had. Roman citizens were Gentiles. To ignore the history, traditions, and rituals of Israel would have been to ignore the very community that Jesus existed in. The problem with this mentality, casting the history, traditions, and rituals of the very community that Jesus was born in, lived in, and died in, the problem with this mentality, as pointed out by Stanley Hauerwas, is that without Israel, they, the church in Ephesus, and we, would not have Jesus. To ignore or dismiss the history, traditions, and rituals of Israel created a divide within the church in Ephesus. The Apostle Paul was a Jewish Christian. He wrote to the Philippian church that he had confidence in his Jewishness. Because of the confidence Paul had, it would have been easy for his letter to the church in Ephesus to take a different turn as chapter 4 begins. Instead of begging the Ephesian church to lead a life worthy of the call to which they had been called, this letter could have been a Twitter-like attack a theological and rhetorical woodshed moment for the Gentile converts. Instead of speaking of humility and gentleness with patience, bearing one another in love, the Gentile Christians could have been rebuked or told to go back to wherever it was they came from. This letter of ethics and praxis has a singular focus, the one the source and example of the humility and gentleness, the patience and the love the church has been called to live. Jesus Christ. Christ is the one that we, the church, the body on earth, fix our eyes on. And to be the church, whether we are gathering online, in a physical church building, or in a local park, the lordship of Jesus Christ over all of creation is what we proclaim each time we gather for worship. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father above, of all who is above all and through all and in all. We are one. 
held together by the one who all things came into being through. And yet, the church today is even more fractured and divided than it was when this letter was written. Before Martin Luther nailed his 95 complaints on a door in Wittenberg, the church was divided. Gatherings of church councils led to the divides on theological, doctrinal, and practical lines. And today, while we've made great strides to unify the church, we remain divided. Evangelical, progressive, Bible-believing, mainline, independent, Catholic, or middle-of-the-road. These labels can be applied to any Christian community within the 200-plus distinct denominations in the United States. The dividing lines within Christ's body have prevented us from leading lives worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Church, setting aside the political mess that's swirling around us, we are not united among ourselves. We have allowed disagreements over sacraments, church law, doctrines that few people outside of academia care about, sanctuary carpet colors, and the brand of coffee to serve on Sunday morning to divide the church. Unity is not uniformity. We can have our differences. We can have rich, meaningful discussions, debates about theology, doctrine, and practice. We should be having these conversations. We can do the things Christ has called the church to do. Feed the hungry, heal the sick, care for the least, search for the lost, and proclaim God's reign, and at the same time disagree without threatening further division and fracturing of Christ's body. Speaking the truth in love is never easy. And it requires fundamental trust that we in the church call faith. But unless someone is willing to be truthful with me, I will never change. Unless I am willing to be truthful with someone else, they will never change. And after all, Jesus is truth incarnate. Will it be easy? No. Will it hurt? Probably but at least we'll be doing something worth our time. We must continue to fight the destructive beliefs and practices within Christ's body. We are obligated to this work so that all people, regardless of the labels the divided world outside the church has placed on them, has a place within the body of Christ. This work is imperative. We have been called all Christians, regardless of occupation, to see to it that not a single person misses out on the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Unity within the church will never be a given. After all, we often choose the community we find ourselves in based on shopping around until we find a church that checks all of the boxes we need checked. Yes, you should find a church where you feel safe, a place where you can grow and lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It can feel like we will never be able to set aside the division and fractions that have split congregations, communities, and denominations, freeing us to focus on the oneness of God. 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. The unity we seek, the peace we long for, it's not something achieved through church council votes or ecumenical gatherings. The unity we seek is already present. The peace we long for is here. The absence of division and fraction is here. It is just like Jesus says it is, like a treasure hidden in a field buried in your backyard. Just because you do not realize it's there, just because you refuse to believe it's there, just because you won't risk looking like a fool and go digging it up your yard, it doesn't mean it's not there. It doesn't mean it's not real and true. It doesn't mean you're not already sitting on a fortune and could be living out those riches. This realization can be a monumental, historic, scary, and angst-filled moment. The releasing of agency is not something we have been trained or formed to do outside of the church. And frankly, with the focus more on division as of late, the church has allowed this monumental, historic, scary, and angst-filled shift to fall by the wayside, allowing us to become dismissive of the history, traditions, and rituals that have set the church apart from the political mess swirling around us. Unity within the body of Christ begins and ends in the lordship of the one who has called us, not only to be a place where the divine and human intersect in the amazing grace of Christ, but we have been called to also be recipients of that grace, held together by grace, held together by the peace of Christ. Unity is something we must realize and live into, but rather to live by faith is to trust that it's something God is doing in word and sacrament by the Holy Spirit. The bad news is the lack of unity in our nation, the lack of unity in the church is too great for us to repair. The good news is it's too great for us to repair, but the living God, the living God is able to. I offer it to you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.